Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Catherine Agronovich. She's a native of Minsk, a town in western Russia near the Polish border that was devastated by the Nazis in World War II. Now, in 1992, at the age of 22, she emigrated to the United States with her family to escape unrelenting discrimination against Jews, which ranged from bullying when she was a child to being barred from medical school despite having achieved the highest grades. Catherine is a feisty yet deeply spiritual woman who is on a mission to share the remarkable insights she has received through her family members, both living and passed on. Her first first book is Tales of My Large, Loud, Spiritual Family, Finding Peace, Purpose, and Healing in the Chaos of Everyday Life. The book recounts her American dream life with her husband Felix and their five children and her journey of discovery about life, healing, and being quite open-minded about things of the spirit. Welcome, Catherine. I'm delighted you could join me. Oh, thank you so much, Mary. It's such a pleasure to be here. Catherine, can you describe what it was like to be a Jew in Russia in the 1970s and 80s? Well, I was growing up, and my friends from preschool, beginning preschool and elementary school, they would call me, dirty Jew, dirty Jew, and I would come home and ask my parents, what do they mean? What does it mean I'm a Jew? What does it mean? And my parents would say, just ignore and never say you're a Jew to anybody. So it was very confusing. It was something bad and wrong and something to be ashamed of. And in the passport, we had a nationality line, and it said Jewish. So there was no such thing as religion. It was some. It was called nationality. Mm-hmm. So anywhere you go, apply to university, apply to work, people would see, and they would not give you the priority of being accepted into mm-hmm. good, prestigious schools. So that was. That was very confusing to me growing up. And when I applied to medical school, that was my dream since forever. And I did well on all my exams. And um, sitting in front of a media committee, they said, we cannot take you, you're a Jew. You're going to escape to, you know, capitalistic America anyways. Why would we educate you? And that was like a bomb. Mm-hmm. I, that, that was... I, I, I was just hurt so deeply, like it was so unfair. And later when I got married and my husband started proposing we actually would leave to America, I was still against it. I said, well, Russia is home. I have, I have a dream. I want to still go back to med school. I'll try harder. I'll prove that I'm a good person. I'm talented. And... He would say, no, we, we don't have a future here. We have to struggle, keep proving, and work hard. It doesn't make sense. We can just live and thrive and be mm-hmm. free. Mm-hmm. But every, everything changed when our first son was born, Eddie. And I started getting nasty attacks from drunk neighbors, so you're a Jew, and, and it was, forget it, we're out of here. Mm. It took two years um, for paperwork, uh, for... Russian and American embassies and government, one country had to let us go, and another had to accept us. 
So after two years, we came here as Jewish refugees. Mm-hmm. With and you were, you were really... a little baby, yeah. Yeah. And you, you actually were able to come with your parents and your grandmother or grandparents, yes? Grandparents, yeah. We were so blessed mm. that we were allowed to come together. Mm-hmm. Because my aunt, my mom's sister, she was already here. And she sponsored us, and American government gave us permission as a close family to reunite with her. Mm-hmm. So that was such a blessing. We came all together. And I understand the Jewish community uh, was very helpful in getting you set up and established. Oh, yeah. They helped us get our first apartment, and they collected donations from people in community, furniture, clothing, you know, pots and pans, utensils, just the basics, like TV. That was like, wow, we have our own TV. <laughs> and, um, and they greeted us at the airport. And that was a huge shock, seeing people so happy to see us. It's like, wow, why are they so happy? <laughs> so, yeah, they, I'm just so, so grateful for them. Yeah. Now, family plays a big role in the book that we're going to discuss today. Um, tell us a, a little about the, the, the family situation, the, the warmth of your family. Um, it, it must have contrasted greatly with the dangers you felt on the outside. Yeah. Well, the family, what I've discovered, and that's what I convey in the pages of my book, what the challenges I lived through with, we just got to America, and I just got my first job, and I found myself pregnant with Adora, and then we had her, and she was critically ill with blood disease. Then one after another, you know, my husband's business partner betraying him, and all of these challenges went seemed just out of out of the blue all of a sudden. But looking back and discovering the deep meaning and higher spiritual purpose, the opportunity to grow and expand, that brought us so much closer as a family. Mm-hmm. Right, and it just helped us heal our past on so many different levels of our consciousness. You know, I've heard so many times from so many different people that growing up when you sense danger around you, whether it's danger from an abusive family or in your case it was danger from an abusive uh, society, it tends to heighten one's uh, intuitive sensitivities. You know, your, your antennae are always on full alert. Do you think that your that childhood in Russia, that growing up in Russia, laid the foundation for opening your intuition later? See, that's, that's a brilliant question. I never thought about that. But what it did for us, it, it, it created the deep desire for a life of freedom, choice, and dignity without leaving this intense contrast back in Russia we would not know the difference. We, you know, we would not appreciate warmth and just aliveness and freedom and kindness of people and ourselves. It gave us this tremendous opportunity 
to create the life that we wanted to create coming here in America. Mm-hmm. Being intuitive, um, I was intuitive growing up. When I just met my husband, we were arranged to meet on a blind date. That's what Jews did back in Russia to give opportunity to their children, get to know each other, and possibly get married. So I was introduced to my future husband by my grandma. And the second I met him, I knew he is the one. And I was only 18. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I consciously was not aware I was intuitive. I was just being that. Mm-hmm. And I knew right away I'm going to have a son. And nine months later, I had a, I had my baby boy. So, very interesting journey. Hmm. Very interesting. Now, you you were conscious of the opening of your intuitive abilities um, with your daughter's illness. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. When she was four. She suddenly developed um, blood disease called ITP. So her spleen was eating her own platelets, and the blood stopped coagulating. She was covered in bruises and rash. She could develop stroke at any moment. It was quite critical. She was hospitalized immediately, put on steroids. And the second when I stopped being a victim and and listening to the doctors, there is nothing we can do. We need to remove her spleen. It doesn't matter what she eats, all of this. When I took responsibility, I was I opened myself up to more options and possibility and healing. I didn't care if it's going to come from traditional medicine, untraditional medicine. I was desperate to heal my child. So when I took her to energy healer, and she started telling me she saw visions of past life. Uh, to my scientific atheistic mind, it made zero sense, but I didn't care because I saw her blood work start improving. And I wanted more and more and more. And I started writing positive affirmations. I started cooking her home meals with organic and natural. So we did like this the entire holistic approach, and she's healthy. Mm. Thank God for that. But see, when when I stopped kind of relying on doctors' opinions and being kind of paralyzed by fear, I took charge, and I allowed the Spirit help me, help me recognize there is so much more resources and possibilities. And I listened. I was so desperate I had to listen. Um, it was really quite amusing to read about every um, example of spirit speaking to you, and then you would think, oh, no, I must be right. going crazy. Right. <laughs> it must be my imagination. Right. The mind always doubts. Human being, human is the ego, being is the source, the spirit. The human is always going to doubt. But then at some point, you are so sure. You're not curious. You're not hopeful. You're not doubtful. You just know that there is more. And that's gradually over the years. This is what happened. 
I know there is more, and I know it's available to me and every single person, any time, any second, any second, they can stop and ask, Spirit, tell me. And the answer is always right there. But I think what's important to emphasize is that it's not that a switch suddenly turns on and you're awakened. It's a process. It's, it's a oh, continual yeah. proving to yourself, experiencing it. Right, for sure. For sure. Now, <laughs> your book is so funny and often a bit salty, but it's deeply personal. You tell your personal experiences and the wisdom that you have gained, the, the insight you've gained from each experience, right. um, including you had a two-year bout with depression. Yeah. Do you have any idea what plunged you into that depression? I remember I was in the kitchen. My life was, you know, just going great. And I was in the kitchen washing dishes. And I remember I mentally asked myself, is there more? And it's like my spirit decided, okay, she's ready for this crash course towards enlightenment. Let's put her on it. And next morning I wake up and it's, I'm, I'm completely secluded. I'm in, my heart is frozen, my mind is numb, I'm, I don't know, I have no idea what happened to me. And that was, that called me to stop looking outside for answers, which I did for two years, running around and like any normal human would do, you know, looking for answers and trying to get help and advice from all the people around me. But when I realize none of this really is going to resolve what's happening. I need to look inside. And this is where I start taking the journey inside and things started shifting. Hmm. So why my spirit did that? Crash course. I'm so grateful it happened. I am just in two years. I can see so much clearly from where I was before. So much has happened and unfolded. Such such a blessing. So I'm just grateful for this experience, for this pain. But I know deeply I don't need it anymore. I got it. <laughs> there is no need to go back and suffer like that mm -hmm. for two years. Mm -hmm. yeah. What have been some of the other challenges that you've had to overcome? Well, another big one with my husband, Felix, he worked with his close friend, our family closest friend, Victor, our business partner for over 12 years. And suddenly Victor decided, you know, he's going to exclude Felix from all the shares of the company and just like that. And that was quite shocking. Yeah. But I already practiced hypnosis and I knew there is a reason. There is a higher purpose to all that's unfolding. And the human mind labels, it's wrong, it's bad, it's unfair. But the being inside, it knows that there is a lesson here, there is a purpose there. So I offered Felix, well, let's do hypnosis, let's see what happens. And he, again, he was desperate. He didn't know what to do. He didn't necessarily believe in all of that, but he agreed. Well, probably, you know, to, to stress relief. 
but he had his own spiritual experience, and it served such a great purpose for him. He's so much stronger and wiser and powerful than he was before this betrayal. He's a different person. So now he's looking back years and years later after work and forgiveness and all of that, and he also is very grateful that it happened. Under what circumstances? When did you pick up the tool of hypnosis? Hypnosis just found me. I was fascinated with mind. I studied physiology and biology in my medical college in Russia. We never, you know, mind was not included. You have brain, you have liver, you have spleen, but there is no ghost in the machinery. And one of my friends, who is a physician here in the States, she recommended me a book, Brian Weiss, Many Lives, Many Masters. He's a, uh, he's a psychiatrist who hypnotized uh, his patient, and she started bringing messages from previous lifetimes. And that book changed my life. I said, I, this, this is for me. This is mine. Mind holds, uh, human mind holds all the keys to open up all of these gel cells we created growing up, observing life and society. It holds all the keys. And mm-hmm. that was my passion, to work with human mind. Um, I might mention that you you became a nurse in Russia and uh, you kind of requalified here, and then you went to um, you're working on your or you got your PhD. Yeah. Uh, tell us in what area? Natural health studies. Mm-hmm. And my paper was cure versus healing, the difference between medical model of cure and holistic healing. And all of this happened after my daughter's illness. Mm-hmm. She gave me this fascinating gift of discovering so much more about holistic health and healing. I thought it was fascinating in the book that you use hypnosis with your children quite regularly. Um, tell us about some of the experiences you've had with them. Well, when Jessica, at first it was traditional hypnotherapy to use mind and reframe it, you know, to get good grades, to be more ambitious, more confident, to stop biting your nails. I mean, very basic uh, traditional hypnosis. But what happened, I hypnotized Jessica to help her pass her math exam. And she goes into the trance. And suddenly she starts describing. She sees a door. It's like, well, I'm just sitting there listening and the door opens, and I'm falling inside of the rainbow. There are two angels, and they greeted me. And this is where I freaked out. That was the very first time where she kind of descended lower than conscious and unconsciousness into the realm of the spirit. And hypnosis suddenly became spiritual hypnosis. And then I start kind of... You, I liked it. I liked what she was saying. Next time I hypnotized her, she met my deceased grandma, who I adored dearly. And she started telling me messages from my deceased grandma. And 
all of a sudden, anytime we would have a question or concern, we needed some kind of guidance. I would use Jessica as my channel before I had to look inside and use myself, my own guidance. I would use her. So, you want to be hypnotized and, you know, ask angels and grandma what should we do? And she would agree. She loved it. She would sometimes bring her friends and they would meet the angels in the trance and get insights. It was such a neat experience. But then over the years, it became natural and traditional hypnosis, kind of we outgrew the need for that. We could just be in the moment and ask. We did not need this routine anymore. The induction routine. Right, Mm -hmm. right. The traditional induction routine because the mind was trained. It was a habit. And it's like okay, let's just relax, let's go outside, let's calm our critical mind, and the answer is there. Intuition, the intuitive kind of, the gut feeling, it was always there. So you used hypnosis to, to train yourselves how to go into that mind. really yeah. quiet place. Uh-huh. Yeah, just to open up the mind. Just awesome. open up the mind and allow the intuitive guidance and voice of intuition come through. So were your boys also able to pick up this technique? Some of them. One time, Eddie, Eddie is 24 now, and he, he doesn't say he's spiritual, and I mean, he's way too cool for that. <laughs> but... <laughs> but when he was 16, uh, I had to take him to the pediatrician to do the um, physical exam for sports. And pediatrician found some, something wrong with his heart and uh, referred him to cardiologist. And this is where I offered, Daddy, let's do hypnosis and let's just use the power of your source, of your soul, to heal this if there is anything there, to just take care of it. And he agreed. And we did that. And when I took him to cardiologist, she said, everything is just absolutely perfect. He's absolutely healthy boy. So they, they know. My challenge, not to push my kids to my beliefs and my experiences. I listen to them, what makes sense to them, what's real. And I just very gently empower them. Ask your belly, is it a good food for me to eat? Um, And they're very responsive. It's natural for them to be intuitive. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about uh, asking your belly about good food. Yeah. Um, You, uh, when you were dealing with Jessica's uh, physical problems and you converted the whole family sort of kicking and screaming to a healthy diet, uh-huh. Eventually, they they came to realize that their bodies really craved that and, and right. were rebelling against junk food. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it becomes a habit to eat well and to feel good. And I always at the store, they want something, and I would say, you know, let's read ingredients and let's ask our belly. Is, mm-hmm. is this a good idea for my body to eat this? And they were like, no, not really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was interesting that um, 
you kept on thinking that you were through having children and then one one reason or another you felt that you needed another one um why do you think um spirit wanted you to have uh all these little gifts right well the fifth one this child gave me this profound gift of experiencing pregnancy through the eyes of my soul. For the first time in my life, I had spiritual pregnancy experience. And that was so profound. I craved this. I needed that. I was so deeply connected to spirit and God. I was praying. I was meditating. I was taking daily walks on the beach. And, and it's glowing, just glowing, being connected. This baby gave me this gift. This was the baby that happened after the mikveh experience, right? Right, right. He's well, tell our, tell our listeners about that. Oh, yeah. Well, when I went to, Felix and I, we uh, went to Arizona for this meditative uh, raw vegan uh, retreat. I went to the... Shabbat evening services at the temple with Dr. Cousins. He's a guru and rabbi, and he's a This is Gabriel father. Cousins? Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. And he was kissing everybody at the end of services on the forehead and whispering the blessing for each person. So when my turn, he kissed me and he whispered mikvah. And I'm like, mikvah, what is mikvah? I've never heard about it. So back in my room, I Googled it, and I started reading. It was very interesting. It grabbed my attention, but I didn't want to do it. I have severe waterphobia, and it sounded very religious, very observant, kind of a little too much for me. I did not care about it, even though it's fascinating. It's a deeply mystical Jewish ritual of purification and kind of inner cleansing of the female. In Judaism, female, she considers a crown on her husband's head. She kind of closer to God. She is a spiritual channel between divinity and her physical family. So it's her responsibility to keep herself clear, mentally, physically, and emotionally. So mikva, it gives this opportunity. And, um, I think we should explain that the mikveh is a ritual bath um, where women, after they <clears throat> have uh, finished menstruating, uh, right. or have, or anyone who has had contact with anything unclean, like a dead body, has to immerse themselves and be purified. So there's both the physical right. and the spiritual aspect that you're talking right. about. She goes in the middle after her cycle. In the middle of her cycle, she goes in a special place like a spa, really, and she immerses herself complete and total immersion into the holy waters of the mikvah. And there are special prayers involved, and it's just, the whole thing is so, so mystical and spiritual. So I told my husband, uh, I don't want to do it. It's, it's just and one of the reasons of the mikvah to conceive so he completely was against it. He's like, "You're not. We're not having any more kids. It's absolutely no, no, no." <laughs> but being in Arizona, something happened to him. He had a vision of his own, of one of our past lives, and he saw. 
he saw this baby and he kind of felt this baby has to be born. We need to have this child. And he was the one who actually empowered me to go through with this Mikva experience. And it was, I have to say, it was so, such a deep, humbly spiritual experience for the whole, it did a lot to our marriage as a couple, as husband and wife. We connected on a different level after this experience, that's for sure. Hmm. And we conceived our fifth child. It, it was just so special, so special, so different from my other pregnancies. One of the fascinating um, features in your book are uh, kind of dramatizations of stories from your parents, your grandparents, um, that you received either intuitively or through channeled messages from your uh, daughter. Um, tell us how they informed your understanding of reincarnation and past lives. Yeah. Well, when one of the most impactful of all, when I experienced witnessing my grandparents being reincarnated and born again, I was basically awake at night, and here I was hovering over this woman in labor, and energetically assisting her to deliver twins. And in this vision or dream, I saw spirits of my grandparents, grandma and grandpa, waiting to enter the bodies of the newborn babies. It was so vivid. I, I, I just knew. It's them, and they're born, and they're twins, boys and girls, living in Chicago. Right now, they're about four years old. So <laughs> after witnessing something like this, you can't deny it. Hmm. Can you expand a little bit about this sense of knowing? Because one of the things that is so difficult for most of us to do is to trust, is to to understand when you move from that place of skepticism to this yeah. knowing. Yeah. Well, it unfolds gently. First, you're critical, you're in denial. Then, at least in my case, I was just in deep shock and denial of the whole thing. I didn't raise spiritual. I didn't believe in God or none of this. When a person dies, the body gets buried, and this is the end. So when I was sitting in my grandma's funeral and my daughter announced that she sees grandma and grandma is hugging me, it was just too much for me to handle. I, I couldn't. I was too closed. My human mind was too closed. But then slowly, I think that's the karma. People ask, what's, what's the karma, what I'm here to do? I think this is the, what, the reason why are we here to go on this journey of awakening and come to the place of knowing 
that there is no separation, that we are eternal and connected. And once you know that, you can't go back. <laughs> once you experience these visions or insights or deep intuitive pools, you start hearing Sometimes I hear my grandma saying something to me, or I feel her love around me. I can't pretend it's not happening. If I do, I will suffer. So, like, the other day I was talking to one of my friends. She is also from Russia, and she just read my book. And she said, well, I love the stories, but all this spiritual, mystical stuff, they are just too much. I kind of skip through. And this is okay. I noticed that she's so much nicer to her children after reading the books. Everybody's spiritual. They, they may not be consciously awakened to that, but everybody is spiritual and guided by spirit. And for me, I just love people where they are. And it just feels great compassion because I remember how difficult it was to be unconscious and to be disconnected and close-minded. It was difficult. It's so much easier to be aligned and connected. And I know any time I am way into my ego, I never feel good. I just, and I know I need to get closer. And all of this, when I'm in my ego mind, all of these mystical stories, they sound ridiculous even to me, but all it means, I am disconnected from my source, from my spirit. I'm too far into my ego. That's mm -hmm. all it means. It doesn't mean they're not real, that, you know, I'm crazy. It means I need to hush my mind down and get closer. And the closer I get, okay, it's like coming back home. Such a warm, cozy, and soft feeling of belonging just something greater and wiser. And everybody has their own path to arrive there. And everybody has their own free will, how long it will take them, you know, how long they're willing to suffer. It took me a few years till mm -hmm. I decided, okay, forget it. I can't do it anymore. Either I'm going to die or wake me up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I understand that um, this book arose out of an essay that you wrote for the Chabad organization, uh, and it, it was even um, going to be made into a play. Is that? Yes. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I was so inspired after my micro experience. I was on the cloud nine. And I was sharing about this experience with my friend, Basi, Rabbi's wife. And she said, Catherine, you should write about it. I said, really? She's like, yeah, you should write about it. So I did. I wrote about it. And I sent it to Chabad.org, and they agreed to publish it. And after it was live, the same day, I got so many comments. So many women were around the world touched and inspired by this experience. And Chabad of Rome in Italy, they contacted me and asked, can you make a play out of it? I said, absolutely. They made a play. Then they translated this article in different languages. 
that kind of gave me confidence to write more. And I started writing more articles for Chabad.org, and then it grew into desire to create the book out of it. And I understand you have uh, another book and possibly a film in, in the, on the horizon? Right, yeah. My, more tales, more tales of my large, loud spiritual film. It's, it's so inspiring. Sometimes I wake up at 5 a.m. and I just run to my laptop and I start writing. I can't stop it. And I know if I will, I will not feel good. It's coming through me so strongly. I keep on writing the stories and with the meaning the higher purpose and I think that's my mission for right now okay do you think we should mention your little palm tree fairy a palm tree fairy <laughs> when my sister read this chapter my sister is extremely logical girl <laughs> like Glenn right <laughs> she made this comment yeah I see them all the time that was the first experience but I see kind of the clump of glittery lights a lot of times around palm trees or any trees mm-hmm. and it's, they make me feel good they make me feel connected to nature and nature is a source of balance and strength and I use a lot of um, metaphors and hypnosis with my clients um, about, you know, the strength of the tree, deeply rooted and connected to earth and skies and yet powerful and tall and strong and yet so gentle and flowing with the wind and breeze. And, you know, I, I love being in nature. And seeing those fairies is just a confirmation that we are connected to nature as well. And is this part of the gifts that you've been developing um, for healing others. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. After my fifth child, I started experiencing very interesting sensations in my body. My right shoulder would twitch, and I would kind of, at first it was really bizarre. I would diagnose myself with Parkinson's disease, and but then I started, well, wait, maybe something's more happening here. I would feel energy flowing through my hands. And in Starbucks or just at Target, at, at, at the grocery store, I would see somebody and I knew this person needs healing. And my shoulder would twitch and I would channel the energy towards that person. And I knew the moment when it was complete. My shoulder would relax and I would move on. And then shortly after, one of my friends uh, recommended a book, The Reconnection, by Eric Pearl. And the moment I held this book, I started shaking all over. I mean, I felt the frequencies right away. And he calls them Reconnection Healing. And after I read this book, I would sit in front of my client and my hands would start moving. And... I had no idea what was happening. But now there is a routine. I already understand what's, what's going on. I'm guided. This energy finds me, flows through me into the person, and heals whatever needs to be healed in this person. Mm-hmm. So that happened after my microboy. 
Mm-hmm. So you you really have a, a an acute case of openness to spirit. Very acute case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very fascinating. Sometimes Do you have a- too acute? Sometimes I feel, you know, I catch myself. I feel too acutely. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you have a website, Catherine? Yes, my clinic's website, www.achievehealthcenter.com. And my book site should be ready soon. We're almost done with creating that. Um, and it's going to be Tales of My Large Loud Spiritual Family.com. And the book, the book has a lot of. Um, hypnotic and neurolinguistic and meditative trance techniques which myself and my family went through but what happens when reader kind of the book takes the reader in and everybody discovers for themselves um, their own breakthrough or insight kind of reading through my experiences what I went through Uh, so the book is available on amazon.com and there is a lot of pages, simple pages, look inside. People can see mm-hmm. the, you know, the chapters and the samples and read through. And of course, it's on ncreview.com because we uh, were delighted to get your book for review. And I think it's a, an absolutely riveting read, mm-hmm. which I warmly recommend. Wow. Well, thank you for this. And thank you for being with us today, Catherine. We've been speaking with Catherine Agranovich, the author of My Large, Loud, Spiritual Family, Tales of My Large, Loud, Spiritual Family. And I can't wait to see your next book. Thank you, Catherine. (laughs) Thank you, Miriam. All the best to you. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. And my next guest is Mignon Brooks, a professor of journalism and English at Burlington County College and Camden County College. But Mignon's passion is helping students find a career that will give them a sense of purpose and fulfillment in their lives. She coaches them before, during, and beyond college in how to pursue their dreams within the framework of day-to-day reality. So welcome, Mignon. I'm really looking forward to hearing your secrets. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to being on your show. I truly appreciate you having me. Now, you know, in today's economy, finding one's dream job can sound rather like wishful thinking. Where do you even start convincing somebody that they um, can make it? Where I start is um, I get rid of the belief, the limiting belief that our economy um, will will not um, allow a student to achieve their goals. And how do you do that? What I do is I take a look at the student's value system and I'll have them check off about 10 values that are important to them and uh, we'll take it from there. We will um, identify um, values that they no longer, that no longer serve them and then um, we'll take a look at releasing those values mm-hmm. um, with love, specifically. So some of these values can actually be limitations that they have absorbed from their parents, from their uh, religious environment? Absolutely. These are um, 
limiting beliefs that they have been domesticated or they, you know, in the, in the domestication process, they have learned. Um, and they don't even know it's more of an unconscious, you know, thought yeah. that as to why they believe this way. And so this might be limiting them from achieving the goals that they actually, you know, really can achieve. You're using the term domestication that Don Miguel Ruiz uses in uh, his book, The Four Agreements. And he talks about how we come into the world full of eternal optimism and then the universe, somehow our environment conspires to pull us down. So what you're doing actually is pulling people back up and helping reintroducing themselves to themselves. Absolutely. So is college appropriate for everybody? No. Um, college is not appropriate for everyone. Everyone has their own journey. And um, what I do is actually, you know, I call myself, I'm called the collegiate career coach. But um, in that process, I also work with high school students. Um, to figure out what it is that they want to do. And by no means is college the answer for everyone. For some people, that's part of their journey. And for other people, it's not. And for others, their journey is to um, take some time off and then go back to college. Mm -hmm. It differs completely. You know, when I was growing up, uh, which I'm still in the process of doing, I found it very difficult to focus in on what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. Um, what are some of the tricks that you use to help students figure that out? What I do is um, I'll use uh, different hobbies that they that they enjoy. Um, I'll have them, you know, it, I'll have them actually gain knowledge through working with others who are in particular fields of which they have interests. Mm-hmm. Um, I even suggest that they take a particular class um, that has something to do with the career goal that they may have. Um, there's, so there's a variety of ways in which um, I have students, you know, focusing on something that they like to do. Mm-hmm. Also, um, in addition to that, I, I always ask them open-ended questions, one of them being, you know, focusing on something that they like doing without, you know, without even looking at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, if you're really absorbed in something, the hours will go by and you don't feel it at all. So that, Absolutely. That's a really good approach. So, um uh, in the students that you've been dealing with, what seems to be most important to them? Is it making money? Is it being happy in their career? Both, actually. is making money and being happy. And that's um, really the crux of my life coaching business is me, you know, at Dream Purposefully Empowerment Services, we focus on the fact that you can make money in doing whatever your aspiration is. You know, one of the concepts that are uh, we're trying to overcome 
is that life is a zero-sum game. That means that there's not enough for everybody. And what you're saying is that there is enough for everybody. You just have to believe it. Would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. Um, we need to believe it, and we need to open our eyes to it and live it, really. That's, that's the um, main goal to actually live it. Believing, to me, believing in it um, is one thing, but living it is another. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give to a young person starting out? What is the most important single step they can take to put them on the right path? I would say the single most important step is to follow their heart. What they can do is to, um, and you'll believe it or not, um, I work with students on a breathing exercise, much like meditation, and to just be still and follow their heart, follow their dreams, follow their aspirations, um, and just pursue exactly what it is that's in their heart without any reservations, even if they don't know how they're going to be able to do it, go ahead and, you know, define what it is. And then the next step will be limiting these beliefs and actually achieving these goals to get to where they want to be. You know, it's interesting. I just got a book for review called um, Live Your Dream. What would you do if you absolutely knew that you could not fail? And mm. this is what you're you're really teaching your students, isn't it? Absolutely. That that hits right it hits it right on the head. So where do people go to find out more about what you do, Mignon? Um, they can go to my website. My website is www.collegiatecareercoach.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Twitter. Pinterest, uh, Google Plus, there's so many um, social media sites now. I try to remember all on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And um, so I want all those social media sites. And plus, they can just give me a call at 609-932-0483. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us, Mignon. Thank you so much for having me. Next week, our guest will be Dr. Kelly Turner, talking about an important new book called Radical Remission, Surviving Cancer Against All Odds. And now we're going to close with our track of the week by Jamie Green called Taxi Man. Enough that I won't be left. Taxi man, do you feel you?
Man by Jamie Green from her album Truce. Jamie's website is jamiegreenmusic.com and while you're there, check out the link to her other group, Soul Aviv. It's a four-person Jewish vocal group with a unique blend of folk, Motown gospel, Memphis soul, and world music grooves, and it's created a remarkable impact since they've started. Their website is soulaviv.com. Jamie is a member of the Positive Music Association, whose website is positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you'll join us next week. In the meantime, visit our website, ncreview.com. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.